Welcome to the Cinephile His Fit Podcast, brought to you by the Ruminations Radio Network and sponsored by Film Obsessive. This is the tirade film movie debate hosted by two film critics, cool dads and struggling teachers. I'm Don Shanahan. And I'm William. Oh, oh, yep, yep. Johnson. Uh-huh. Sorry, I just Got wanted it. to take my time on this one. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. So, ladies and gentlemen, we're damn glad to have you folks. This is all for tantrum's sake. We're share passions and high fives, wash away any place for hate. No matter what, we encourage you all to love what you love. But for now, the gloves are off and the hissy fit is on. This week, we have a very special episode. We're kind of taking a little bit of an editorial slant. Normally, when we do this, we have a room full of five people at a bar somewhere, and it's all of our friends. But the two of us are going to tackle this topic, and it's the idea. Will, you have this question, and, and you got to tell us more of the genesis of this um you said to me we should talk about why movies feel long not necessarily are long but feel long tell Mm -hmm. us about how that came to be and why we're here with mics on well it's it's a weird phenomenon because this is why it came up is because there's a lot of movies that i watched a long time ago uh or that you know i grew up with that i would think of as long movies right Mm -hmm. Whether that is because of the running time or the density of the subject matter. Um, okay. And, and they would, at that time, especially as a younger person, I could feel you know, mm. the timing on that. But as you get older and you become more of a cinephile, like you, you don't really you, – you think about it, you feel it from time. But like, you know, other than something that's like three and a half hours, you don't generally sit there and go like, oh, God, like – you know, like you're in it to watch the movie and, and see, it. Mm-hmm. you know, uh, something comes along like an Irishman that's like three hours and 45 minutes. And you're like, oh, boy. But oh, for yeah, the most okay. part, like, like if I I don't really look at times like like when I go to a, a Marvel movie or something, it ends up being two hours and 35 minutes. I might be like, well, they, you know, whatever. I, I don't really little here, little is, there. Right. Time is not necessarily a factor in my enjoyment of a movie unless you can feel okay. it, because sometimes as. I'm sure some critics have said there's movies that are 80 minutes long that feel like they will never end. And there's movies that are four hours long. You don't want to end. So but the reason why I bring this up is because we do live in a different era of cinema. Right. And the cool thing about having like a high school teenage kid is I get to I don't really believe in a lot of censorship. Neither did my parents. That's why I got to see stuff really young. So I show my daughter all kinds of shit like that. I'm like, OK, you need to see this. Right. Um, concurrently while I'm showing her some stuff, uh, I've also been writing some, some articles and getting back into writing and I was doing, I love that by the way. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I, I was invited to do, uh, an article for a fanzine about cinema that's going to be published like on paper, which I'm really excited about. And I was asked to write about my favorite movies. I, or my favorite movie. And I decided I would do the Blade Runner movies as opposed to just one of them. Okay. I watched, I watched Blade Runner and I remember putting the i have the old the final cut dvd set so i put the dvd and i was like okay i gotta I, I have a long i got a it's gonna be a while like because it's a long movie to me it's a long movie right mm-hmm. movie ends and i didn't even notice the time because i love the movie but and i was like holy shit this this was one hour and 58 minutes yep you know uh recently before dial of destiny i rewatched almost all the indiana jones films was kind of shocked, you know, that the longest one uh, up until Dial of Destiny was mm-hmm. two hours and like eight minutes, and that was Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. The yeah. older movies in the eighties were all under two hours, or I think like Amazing. I think Last Crusade was like two hours and three minutes, right? Uh-huh. Uh, recently showed my daughter Terminator Two. I used to think of that as a very long movie, 
it is two hours and 18 minutes, but you never feel the time. Mm-mm. And then I started thinking about like, okay, movies in the last 10 years or so, you, you go to the movies and it just, you feel, you feel the time. And, and I don't know yes. if it's because of the new language of cinema, that how stories are told now, but it's something I wanted to investigate with you because mm-hmm. I'm finding stuff that I used to think was long is a breeze. Uh, sure. The, the, the impetus for this show, actually, we did, it's yet unreleased. It's our super emergency backup episode. Like, you know, if Skynet takes over or something, like yeah. we'll have one episode in the hole. It's, it, we did an audio commentary on Star Trek The Motion Picture. That's right. And, and, and one thing that is always plague that movie is that it's long and it's burdensome and it's, it's slow. But as we were watching it, I, I was like, man, this goes fast. Like I'm it in. didn't feel, it didn't feel long. And yeah. so I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure out like why, like, and you and I experienced this firsthand. Like we went to dial a destiny, like as much as mm-hmm. I like that movie, it's almost two hours and 40 minutes. You're like, why? Like this was yeah. this, this type of story was done you know, four times before in two hours or less. Why does it have to be almost three hours now? And why do superhero movies have to be two and a half to three hours now? Why do mm-hmm. all these movies have to sustain a certain amount of, why do the glorified, you know, uh, godfathers of cinema like Francis Ford Coppola and Martin Scorsese, why can't they just make a two hour or less film? Why does it have to be four hours long? What is going on? And like, why is this happening? Yeah. Why are more and more movies? And the last episode we did, I don't know when it'll premiere in terms from this one, but you know, you've got Barbie, which is less than two hours, but you got Oppenheimer, which is three. And it's, mm-hmm. the, it's becoming the rule, not the exception. It's, it's now these are physically longer. Like they're just literally longer, whether they feel longer or not is another, is another part of it. But what I've noticed is that films that I used to think were longer are actually so much tighter especially yes. compared to this day and age. And that's just something I wanted to look into. Cause yeah. I'm wondering if you feel the same way. I do. And um, I feel like it's when you say why I'm trying to put my thinking cap on and put my film critic hat on and examine some hows to go with that. Mm-hmm. Why? And like, you know, cause the whys can be, the whys could be a sliding scale because um, I know we were talking about, or I tried to kind of throw a list at you of like, I kind of gave the topic some thought and um, I kept coming back to the idea of like artistic freedom and creative control mm-hmm. where um, we're in this place where that's probably the number one. Why is we have the top, top notch filmmakers like the Martin Scorsese and the Francis Ford Coppola's who probably by, because of their veteran and emeritus status probably get, or they're Christopher Nolan and they have box office clout. They probably have final cut privileges. Mm-hmm. And when you do that, man, you're at the whim of an artist then, you know, in terms of like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to squeeze everything I can out. I, I have this big budget. I don't mind if we go over budget. I'm making my art, you know, whatever, whatever line Scorsese wants to put on. But like, <laughs> it's, but it's, um, you're right. It's becoming the thing where, and I, and, They've earned it. You know, I don't, I don't want to take away creative control or anything like that. Sure, of um, course, yeah. And, and artistic freedom, because I mean, that should be there. No problem. But, like, it, it, the weird part is we're still in a place where in order for you to get your final cut and to have your creative control, I, I say this all the time. It's a, it's a business first and an art exposition second because we sell tickets to it. 
So at some point, Marty, Christopher, Francis, your film has to make fucking money. And I'm sorry that it has to. But unless you're self-financing this, because every time I watch you go make a movie, you take your hat in your hand to a studio and say, I need $155 million to have Joe Pesci and Robert De Niro come back with CGI. Can, would you give it to me, Netflix? And Netflix does and then makes $8 million back and wins no Oscars. And that there goes creative control like a fool me once fool me twice kind of stuff so and i know we shouldn't it shouldn't have to matter that the business side you know we should let these artists do their thing and let them make their art but you can't these the art costs money so you have to make money and it's it's the number one why i keep coming back to is creative control but the problem is that is fueled a lot of times by money or earning potential like even when a rookie director or a marvel director is given two hours and 30 minutes two hours and 40 minutes to make a marvel movie it's because they're going that's that then that becomes bang for buck where the the creative and artistic freedom is maybe at the studio level because they want to pack as much as they can into this movie to make as much as they can to make, get you to come back for the next. Well, thing. remember when Dr. Strange and the multiverse of madness came out, one of the headlines was like, it's only two hours and four minutes. I know. You know we were so like stunned. One of the headlines when everyone was like, really? You know, yeah. like uh, that was like amazing. People were like, holy shit. Yeah. You know, a uh, venom, let there be carnage was 90 minutes. Yeah. You know, and uh, it was, but that's becoming, like I said, the exception, not the rule. Um, yeah. When you talk about creative freedom, it's, it, it, yeah. it is, it is, there's certain levels to all this stuff. And okay, we live in such a sensitive era now where it's like, if you, you know, if, if I make a suggestion, you're, you're getting in my creative bubble, oh, but that's the thing is, is big. Ego that, that's is a, big. That, that's the thing. And that, that's, what's frustrating. So like, I get it. Like if you're, if you're making a painting, right. I can understand if three people come up to you and say like, well, I think you should color that yellow. You're like, well, this is not what I'm feeling. But yeah. you also look at the risk and reward of a painting. Uh, Correct. Most of the risk is on the artist himself, him, him or herself. And the reward goes to them if they sell it or not. And if they don't sell it, they were like, okay, well, I made a pure product that I'm proud of. If I sell it, that's extra money in the bank. But it's also the difference is, is that he's not spending, he or she is not spending two hundred million dollars on that painting. Uh huh. They're, they're also not thousands of people for that. Yeah, right. Exactly. So, there's levels. Uh, you know, the mm-hmm. thing I think of a lot. I've used this on the show before. Yeah. Is people talk about you know The Godfather and how amazing and it is an amazing film. It's one of my in my top probably twenty five thirty whatever. Oh yes. But uh-huh. the amazing thing about The Godfather. And you can actually see this in its sequel. Nice. You can see this in the sequel too. YouTube gets that one. So yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But you can see it in the sequel as well. Godfather has a lot of control. Robert Evans as Mm -hmm. studio head producers. Now Francis Ford Coppola was able to fight for a lot of the things that they wanted to be cut out. Like they did not want the wedding scene. They did not want Al Pacino. They did not, you know, whatever. But you have to remember, before Ford Coppola made that movie, mm-hmm. he had three extreme disasters before that that were like yeah, over budget, sure. over time, yeah. made, didn't make any money. So like it was a perfect symmetry. He stood up where he needed to artistically. He mm-hmm. made the film he wanted to make, but he still did it under the studio system, under the requirements of like them saying, okay, we're okay with you making a three-hour movie, but you got to at least stick to that. Like, 
there was yeah. collaboration. There wasn't this whole thing of like, well, if you stifle me on this, you're stifling my artistic expression. Yeah. There I'll, was uh, a balance. But real quick, yeah. hold on. I was going to say, Go ahead. when he made Godfather 2, they gave him more control, more you can do whatever you want. And notice the difference between a two hour and 55 minute movie and a movie that's. What what did we what did we decide it was like three? Godfather two, it's longer, yeah. Like three hours and thirty minutes, like yeah, it's big. You, the more you give into the control, mm-hmm. the less of a product you have, and and people are going to be like, well, you can't have products, but like, I know it is a product. It is you, like as soon as you sell tickets, it's not art anymore. It, or it, it's, it's got its price tag. It on. is, and, and and you can have, and we'll go into this later. I'll let you do your thing, but you can have both, and it's okay. Like it's right. totally fine, but go ahead. What were you going to say about that? Well, um, you're talking about levels and collaboration and, or the, 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 and I think there's a, a great one word label that kind of comes with it. And it's kind of on the same idea of thinking where it's like, um, the artistic freedom and creative control. Um, it's accountability. Like if I'm, yep. and that's where a studio can kind of crack a whip or not crack a whip when it comes to accountability, where either a studio has an accountability of their own to have a movie turn out the way they kind of needed to or market it the way they needed to or fit the way they needed to versus mm-hmm. a filmmaker who either takes accountability or doesn't take accountability for how the thing turns out where if they take accountability and go, you know what, my bad, this is too thick. This is too long. I need to rein it in, you know, let me get a script polish. Let me talk to a friend, sit in the editor's room, whatever. If, if hopefully there are more filmmakers that have an, they're a little bit of self accountability to be like, Hey, I, I like what I'm doing, but this isn't going to work for the next layer of this, which is the business side mm-hmm. versus those filmmakers who walk and talk with no accountability and you just get their most effusive thing they've got because no one's raining it in or a studio is not raining it in. And then you just get these, yeah, the really superfluous, super lost over stuff things. And with, with depending on their price tag, just tricky ones to, to sell. Like I was yep. going to go like back to Scorsese. Like I, I make the Irishman joke of $155 million budget, you know, to make and Netflix gave it to him thinking that was, they're going to be their springboard to break the glass ceiling for Oscars. I don't know what an Oscar buys, but if it buys enough cred for Netflix to get a few more filmmakers and get another good project and bump their subscribers up, whatever percentage they want, that's fine. But then even before Irishman, you have, Martin Scorsese making a super personal, super artistic, religious movie, Silence, that's 171, 161 or 171 minutes, where, like, and it only costs like 40, 45 million dollars. But even still, Paramount or Universal, I forget which studio it was, still took that haircut of like, okay, Marty, we love you. We, we love your art. Go make, you made a personal thing. I, I'm touched by your movie. Mm-hmm. Your movie doesn't make me money. And I'm sorry. You yeah, can't make your here so that's why you'll see things like uh, where's the accountability like to me that's got to come from the filmmaker and storyteller first and it's rare that a filmmaker or storyteller goes hey guys that's on me they're almost like politicians where they can never go during a debate you know i don't know the answer to that question but i'll get back to you i'm gonna figure that out they have to have this immediate non-damning answer and it never works that's why you'll see somebody like uh, david lynch right yeah. The only reason why he still is making movies in a way is because there are usually foreign investors that want that cachet of being like, I was involved in a David Lynch film, you know, uh-huh. and because you're not getting, you know, I think I could be wrong. I don't know the, the history of it, but I think like the last David Lynch film that was maybe 
like a studio film was maybe straight story because that was Disney. Yeah, I'm not 90, sure, but I, I yeah, cause, yeah, yeah. Because Small time ago. Drive was a failed TV pilot, and then he reshot an ending and then released it. So I'm not even sure that was a studio thing. Uh, whatever. I don't know. I don't know all the history. So someone out there is going to get me. But for the most part, like if you watch more of his recent stuff, you know, it's it's usually funded by someone looking for the prestige level, not the profit sure. level. They're willing to take yeah. that haircut, like you said. Yeah. Like Showtime is not a huge network. They were like, okay, we're going to get David Lynch to do Twin Peaks again. Mm-hmm. We'll do it. Like, even though only 200,000 people are watching it mm-hmm. yeah, and we're going to lose all this money, we're going to do it because it's the David Lynch thing. And and yeah. people are doing that, but you are seeing less of a market for it. Like Scorsese has to basically beg the streaming services. I mean, it wasn't that long ago. If you remember, yeah. even, even high profile names like Spielberg and stuff were like, Streaming isn't real movies. I know. You know, and now some of these guys, that's the only way they can get movies made. So they've changed their tune. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's an interesting thing because, you know, it's these artists, you know, are, you know, suddenly like, I can't make movies anymore because of my. And this affects every level. I mean, like, for for example, I've been uh, on a John Waters kick lately like i've been uh, i had never seen any of his films and i've always been fascinated uh and i i just went down the rabbit hole and i've you know i've read his books now and i've watched almost all his movies but even he the guy who used to make movies for twelve thousand dollars you know without permits you mm-hmm. know he can't make movies anymore because he says well i gotta have at least 10 million now that's obviously yeah. ridiculous compared to somebody like a scorsese who needs 200 but the point is <laughs> yeah. is that filmmakers are starting to lose that ability to say, all right, let's get back to basics that they have their limits. Like even a John Waters, probably one of the most independent filmmakers of all time is like, I need at least 10 million. Like I can't make a movie for $5,000 anymore. The only one who kind of puts his money where his mouth is with that kind of stuff is Robert Rodriguez. And he'll just be like, he purposely yeah. will make movies for $17,000 just to show that he can. Yeah. Now, are they big successes? Yes, but they're also low risk, low reward yeah. as well. I think the next so, next closest yeah. guy I got there is Steven Soderbergh. Like, Ocean's Eleven and that trilogy made him plenty of bank at Warner Brothers, and you know, and he could have made anything he wanted after all that juice and, and with the Ocean mm-hmm. series. But what has he done the last 15 years? He's kind of... He's like, like I'm, I'm happy. I made my movie with a big studio label, but I kind of still want to make my movies. So I'm going to self-finance. I'm going to self-shoot it. I'm going to stay the gorilla shooter that I've always been and make really yeah. small make it on budgeted a iPhone. Yeah, like <laughs> he's um, made entire films on his iPhone. Like, and done, and done his own marketing like he doesn't want to time himself to studio for whatever reason he, he's been burned by that and yep. that's but that's a guy you could tell who's out there for the art knows how to make the art like you said back to basics knows how to make the art the the most purest way they can with and and, and macgyver stock and do it their own way i look at like and all these greats that were watching in the swan of their career used to do this like crazy like taxi driver was a under two million dollar budgeted movie in 114 minutes and in as tight as a damn drum what happened to you marty where it's i always called <laughs> well, the flaming young buffet where like you know push yourself off from the table trim your excesses and go back to what you knew how to make because you made him really damn good in fact you were the best to ever do it 
for a really long time. What happened? Well, yeah, that, well, there's two things, and this will go into your next point, but uh, and yeah. we'll go to a midway read here in a minute. But sure, sure. I was just going to say two examples I can think of is when you think of Scorsese, like his editor ah. is is yeah. is not as famous as him, but she is probably one of the most Thelma Shoemaker, right? Thelma Shoemaker, yeah. She is probably one of the most revered editors out there. Like it, it, there, if mm-hmm. there's Casual film fans might not know who she is, but people who love movies put her almost in the same realm as Scorsese. So she almost has that level, too, of like, well, I can do no wrong, so I'm not going to edit this thing. The other example is, and it's unfortunate that a death had to occur. Mm. So I'm not trying to be heartless with this example. But Tarantino had Sally Menke. And, you know, sure, he, he always has, you know he was always a long filmmaker to begin with. Cause he's very dialogue heavy, you know, um, you know, you could have a, a ham and egger director or a studio mm-hmm. head make Jackie Brown for an hour and 31 minutes, but he makes his two hours and 10, but whatever. Mm-hmm. But yeah, as soon as she had passed, unfortunately, you know, I think, she, I think the last one she did was in glorious bastards, which is pretty perfect. It's all, even though it's long, it's pretty long. perfect. Yeah. Um, but it's long in the right ways. Like we were yes. talking about, but then I think, the thing he did right after that was hateful eight, right? Which was like Uh, 900 hours long. And I'm not saying that it's acceptable. I'm not making any claims that like, because she had passed, not his fault, not her fault, whatever. But when you don't have that person who is able to, uh, be that voice for you, you know, uh, now to me, like for you, once upon a time in Hollywood does not work at its length. I love that length personally, but so it can still happen, but like, yeah, he seems to have lost a little bit of that. And I think with someone like Scorsese, like, and Shoemaker, they're, they're both so revered that they, they can't do any wrong anymore. And it's, it's yeah. like, they're, they're, they're not getting back to their roots of, mm. you know, whatever, but that comes down to editing, which I think is one of the things you were going to, was on your list, right? So oh, let me, let's get into editing in a second here. So let's take yeah. a quick break. For a short announcement from our non-corporate partners and friends, and we'll get back into that idea of editing. Because I think that's, when we talk about the hows, that's a very big mechanical crucial spot to me. You've seen Twin Peaks all the way through, but all you have are spoiler-free discussions? At Blue Rose Task Force Podcast, no information is classified and nothing beats the listening sensation when production history collides with deep theory. Put the coffee on. All right, welcome back. No, for me, it, the editing somewhere somehow is lazy in a couple directions. One, maybe it's two levels where I know Hollywood used to employ, and this is probably a lack of creative control thing, used to employ script doctors to kind of polish up these things that were either too fat or too otherwise, where mm-hmm. the stories are there of like how many people tinkered on, you know, uh, even on Scorsese movies. We've seen you know, Joss Whedon come in and, and polish a script. We've heard you know, mm-hmm. there there's guys whose whole careers are just polishing somebody else's script. Yep. Um, where sometimes the effusiveness that I keep going back to when it comes to storytelling or the things that might be subjected to bad editing later are swallowed up before the camera even opens, which is helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, a person who I would beg to use a script doctor or at least somebody to sit in the writer's room and go, Hey, I don't think the idea has to go on so long is exactly Quentin Tarantino. Um, but that's it. That's an artistic freedom, creative control guy that you're never going to wrestle that control from. So you just have to work around it. But, um, but the lazy editing <laughs> yeah. comes in a ways like 
and and I actually saw this playing film nerd this weekend with Oppenheimer. Um, I was looking at the stats for average shot length, and um, it's about how many. And for the for the non film nerds, it's like how many seconds are how what's the how long does an average shot last before there's a cut? And it's uh, for Christopher Nolan's career average is three point one seconds per shot. Um, by comparison, Michael Bay is three point zero. Now the funny part is here, you look at Michael Bay kicking and screaming for a 95 minute rock movie, you know, or, or um, well, his are getting Stein. long too. His are yeah. getting long too. So, um, but like him, the energy that you feel watching his three second shots mm-hmm. crammed into the, whatever package they are with the noise they are um, versus Oppenheimer that you just saw this weekend, which I guarantee thanks to the insert images and Malik style is probably kicking about Nolan's career average of 3.1. Like it's not, because you hear about like Annie Hall is like 14 seconds per shot for by comparison. Uh, he, I mean, Woody Allen was uh, largely a put the camera down, let the actors yeah. talk guy anyway. Well, so he wasn't a dynamic. But, but that movie's done 90 something minutes. Like you're right. not overstaying right. a welcome. Like if you're going to, if you're going to linger, linger and get something done. So some of that is the lazy editing where you're just, you're either not trimming where you can trim or you've hyper cut everything. That you, oh, I got to include this, got to include that. Now we got to connect all these pieces because we never stayed long enough for this. Where stacking all these cards of stacking all the hypercuts or not cutting at all, you're still mm-hmm. left with this just weight. Yeah, just too thick, too, too fat of a picture. And I think, and yeah, either the editor and the director have to kind of be in lockstep or you've got to have, again, some accountability where an editor is like, hey, you hired me to do this. I think it needs to get trimmed like this, but again, we're back in creative control land. We're like, no, 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 you're not going to take away my picture. We'll sit in the room and we'll trim stuff together, but we're not, you're not cutting me this low, Sonny Boy, or whoever it's going to be. Yeah. Um, well, and and yeah. But big, big grand editors are kind of gone. Like the Pietro Scalias aren't here anymore. The Teresa Schumachers aren't here, are, are limited and, and elder at this point. Um, Michael Kahn does all the Spielberg stuff and, and kind of works. He's kind of the best in business for a reason. Um, yeah, they're just, they're, I don't know how many good pros there are anymore. Or are we talking about shortcuts where digitally it can't be done as strongly as it used to be done on film? Like when you when you cut that film, you cut uh, you're cutting that film versus scrub. You know, like we always see the little jokes in the memes where like final copy number one of three. This is the one you keep. Like how many digital rejiggerings have been done? Where are you really really cutting? So. I don't know. True. It's, well, I think editing is a great place to look. I also don't think it should be. I know this is weird, but like there used to be this thing, like oh, there's certain numbers of things. Like if you see that a screenplay is written by four or more, especially if there's six or seven, that's yep. a bad thing. I think yeah. people used to too see many ideas. Editing. I think people used to see editing. If there's more than one editor, that was a bad thing. But like, yeah, I was, I've been recently we watching some stuff like Terminator Two. Judgment Day is edited by three people. One Cameron, of my, Cameron's notorious. He, I don't, he's I don't like even, four I don't even, But I don't even think he's listed as one of the editors. There's three editors not, and then probably Cameron in, too. Not in T2, but I like by the time we get to Avatar, there's like four yeah. editors and he's one of them. So Right. Like uh, one of yeah. my favorite, one of my top 20 movies, Oliver Stone's Any Given Sunday, has three editors, mm. I think. Like, yeah. it, there's, there's no reason not to have multiple voices in these things. Mm-hmm. I think it's become, you know, like the editors become its own thing and the cinematographer and all this stuff. And that's fine. But you know, like 
I don't know. I, I, I think it's, we're giving, there's no more, colla- I, well, there's probably collaboration, but like, eh, it just, yeah. well, like the, the one that exposed this for me with the editing okay. was the excellent documentary episode one in the beginning, which is about the making of the Phantom Menace. Mm-hmm. The amazing thing about that movie, and I don't even think George Lucas, I can't believe George Lucas released it because mm-hmm. it is so damning of him as a director at that age because at every step of the production whether you're going with storyboarding creature design casting anakin and -hmm. most importantly editing um there's scenes where he'll come in and ignore any criticism yep and and then it gets to the point where the people are just like yes george whatever you want like There's a scene in that movie where there's a kid. He's it's between the kid they cast for Anakin and this other kid. This other kid is amazing. Like he's an actor. Uh huh. And and George and everyone's like, pick him, pick him. And George's like, well, I don't know. I kind of like this kid because he does this. Yeah. And like everyone's like, yes, George, whatever. But editing is huge. There's that one. There's one point where um, Ben Burt, who usually does sound stuff, he edit. Yeah. He edited episode one. He's got skills for that. I've seen him edit before. Yeah. <laughs> He goes in there and he's like, George, I got four things going on and the tonal shifts between the four things. I've got Gungans doing goofy Three Stooges stuff. I've got Darth mm-hmm. Maul fighting in a very epic, serious battle. I've got a little kid flying a, a thing going, Hoo-hoo! and then I've yeah. got a kind of typical action adventure scene with Natalie Portman breaking into the castle. How yeah. the hell am I supposed to edit this? Like, this is hard. And George is like, well, mm-hmm. we'll figure it out. You're a pretty smart guy. And yeah. bless his heart. Ben Burt does a pretty good job. It's not but bad. Yeah. It's, it's instead of the director sitting down with Ben Burton going, yeah, maybe I should just cut this or fix this. It's make it all, push it all together and make it all work. Cause it's got to work. Yeah. Like, and it's, it's, it's putting too much on the editor sometimes. Cause the That's director fair too. I wonder that you refuse to, uh, what, what's the, what's the term? Uh, kill your darlings, right? That's yeah. the term. Like, yeah, yeah. An example we come up with is in the physical media game. Mm-hmm. If you remember, unrated cuts and director's cuts used to be its own market. Oh, totally. Like, like yeah. I mean, Ridley Scott had a second career with director's cuts. I mean, every movie mm-hmm. he came out with had a director's cut because he would put the one that would go out in theaters mm-hmm. and then he would always release a director's cut on DVD. Because he was like, well, this is how I would have made it if I had full creative control. Yeah. And, and in some cases, I think the movies are better. I think the, the like the director's cut of Blade Runner, the director's cut of American Gangster are better mm-hmm. than the Maybe. theatrical cuts. But then you'll get something like Kingdom of Heaven, where it's just like four hours and 15 minutes. And you're like, okay, I'm glad I got the three-hour cut instead. Right, like, right, right. But like there, there was a whole industry of people being like, okay once we'll have the movie that comes out in theaters and then the, the hardcore movie fans will get the director's cut or the unrated cut or whatever on video later. Yeah. Now it's, there's, I don't think that really exists anymore. There, there are director's cuts, but it's, yeah. it's like you're saying directors. Now, once they become a big enough name, they're like, I get final cut and that's mm-hmm. it. And yeah. there is no more like, like I, I feel like directors used to be like, okay, uh, this is what the studio wanted. I cut it for them how they wanted, but here's my vision. You can watch both if you want. You can have it yep. however you want. Now it's like you, my way or the highway. And it's like, yeah, there's I mean, no in between anymore. 
I think you're dead right because we have, I think we're just in that era and it's been, and hey, success builds it. I get it. And you've earned it because you've busted, mm-hmm. you, you've been really Scott. You've, you've bent, you've been over backwards for studios making movies. They're, they're making, taking your movies and making it their way versus your way, whether your way is better or not, or which, which mm-hmm. one sells or not, where if once you finally get it, I get it, keep it and use it what you can. But I'll go back to accountability. You can't be a stark raving mad creator. You can't be George Lucas where you're just detached. You, like that examples that you're reading, you're right, are very, very damning. And I, I have to think he's not the only one. You, oh, um, definitely not. No, I mean, and, um, we've seen it. We've seen it with everything. I mean, yeah. the example I brought up at the beginning was, you know, you've got the same character, the same storytelling technique, the same framing device with Indiana Jones. Mm-hmm. But all the ones in the 80s were a certain length. Even the one in the late 2000s was the same length. And then suddenly today in the modern era, you got one that's almost three hours long. Why? Yeah. Why is that happening? Yeah. Because it's yeah. the same character, the same story. And I think some of that comes down to, well, partially the quote-unquote sequelization and, and universe building. Like People over-exaggerate a little bit about sequels and stuff because that shit has existed forever. I mean, it's just people are trying to mimic a formula now that one studio did and it's right. just not working. But I think another part of it too is directors, editors, studios, whatever, they don't trust audiences anymore to understand oh, what is so being right. said. Yeah. And so these movies, I think get longer because they literally have to spoon feed shit to you. You are right. And, and don't get me wrong. There's people out there that need yeah. shit spoon fed to them. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. But, but like, I, I don't think for the most part you need to do that. I think audiences are smart. Like I'd like to uh, think so. I, I, I mean, people in general, like, yeah, there's people who don't know the language of movies. That's fine. Yeah. Cause they don't go to the yeah. movies a lot, but sure. in general, you could go to a movie. Uh, a, a good example of this might be, uh, sure, uh, in Avengers Infinity War, right? Part mm. of a universe, but what made the MCU successful is because I showed my dad Infinity War, and he understood the story basics, okay? Sure. Stop the guy from getting all these gems, mm-hmm. right? But now it's almost like people have to like you have to spell it like well who is this person what is their yeah. motivation why yeah. are they like this and how do they yeah. combine and how can we set this up for a sequel and how can we do this it's not just letting things breathe anymore to you know yeah build itself no it's not I, letting the audience think for itself you know yeah I, I you're nailing the head man I think the note we were saying before was like effusive storytelling where um there it's the we're in an over explanation situation because for whatever reason, the people who are seeing movies now uh, don't get it or, or you're right. Need the spoon feeding. I'll give an example from the same film. Look, and we just got done doing Oppenheimer watch memento and then watch inception. He doesn't explain a goddamn thing in memento. You're off. You get, you get mm-hmm. the clues. The character gets and that mm-hmm. movie's under two hours and tight. And then you yep. get to inception and how many scenes are there of exposition where, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio has to show, uh, have to sh- has to show Elliot Page what to do, and you know, like mm-hmm. explain every little piece of the process. What I mean, and 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 just over get into it. Now he's also made the 
but he's also made the mistake in the other direction of like tenant where they over explain it and, you, and no matter how much you explain it you don't <laughs> you don't fucking get it and it's right. just too much so he's done all three he's done i'm going to tell you nothing let you figure it out for yourself and if you don't figure it out i got rewatch power and you can't wait to see it again and yep. momento was that for sure you get to inception thank god it's big stars things got it thank god it's a big spectacle because like things are over explained to you but you're you know it's takes you to a pretty damn good climax where it all comes together the explanation stop and it's go time but you got to get through you know two hours of movie to get there and then you get to tenant where it's random bullshit go it's throw stuff against the wall it looks cool it is cool i know what it means because christopher nolan again kind of holds that above you but like and then when even when he tries to explain it you're explaining it with your own device explaining it of like the corkscrew time stuff he does where it just isn't gonna work so yeah it, it all to, i think you're on it where it some need somewhere it says you got to over explain it or spoon feed i think well, you're dead right that's that's the thing is i just kind of feel like a, a movie we did i don't know if the episode's going to be out yet by the time yeah. this one does but like uh regarding henry we did that one we did that yeah. movie with harrison ford now here's the thing it sets up just enough of harrison ford of kind of this out of touch, rich, rich asshole for about 10 mm -hmm. minutes. Yeah. So that the next 50 minutes or hour and 50 minutes or whatever, you don't need to see him like that to understand that he was that you only mm -hmm. need, you, it feels like you only needed five to 10 minutes yeah. of setup, and then you can continue with the story. Yeah. Now it feels like you have to get like all this background information and you have <sighs> to justify like okay, I'll give you an example, example too. Once yeah. upon a time in Hollywood, yeah, we, we spent it. I I know, I know, I know. I don't mean to, but like <laughs> you spend an awful lot of time trying to get into the head of well, how does Rick Dalton tick, how does Cliff Booth tick, with extended examples displaying it for you yeah. until you get them together for the crux of what that story is. Like yeah. it, it's guilty uh, there too. Slightly, I can, I can see it. It works for me, but I get what you're saying. I yeah, yeah. Saying. Now for, you're um, right though. For some people. Uh, they want to get lost in the details and that can be fun. Like, cause Quentin's not over, not necessarily over explaining our characters. He's explaining his characters through events and action, you know, right. versus talk, 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 talk. So it, he's had his Chetty Cathy movies too. Don't get me wrong. But, um, but at least he's like displaying your characters and backgrounds through events and behaviors. A lot of movies won't do that. It's the, especially an action movie. It's the, it's the room of like, Billy Bob Thornton narr narrating the asteroid situation at the beginning of, of Armageddon. It's every control room guy who has to tell you what's happening. You know, like the uh, it's right. too much. Yeah. Well, we're like, um, I hate to keep harking on uh, <laughs> Go Indiana, Indiana Jones, but mm -hmm. like, oh, that if, character if, introduction. If, if it was in the eighties, if they were making an India, if this was Indiana Jones and Dallas Destiny in nineteen eighty or nineteen ninety two, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and they advance the story. Let's just not get into specifics. But what I mean is, it's like, yeah, it, it's got to show. Well, first of all, the fucking openings like 30 minutes long, which is not necessary. But but yep. when they when they try to get you to where Indy is at, like all you need mm -hmm. to do is show him, show him at the retirement ceremony or or pick one scene and have yep. that. But like in that movie, they're like, okay, first we're gonna show him waking up in his chair. He's mm -hmm. grumpy about his neighbors. He's grumpy uh, on the subway. 
He's kind at his of. retirement for you, and he's grumpy. He sees pictures on his uh, refrigerator of Marion. He's grumpy. He has at the bar. With, he has maybe at the bar. He has a talk with Sala about how it's mm-hmm. not what it used to be, and blah blah. Yeah. It's like no, just. Uh. You don't need to do that. You can get that done in one scene. Like, yeah, you know, this is the character we met with dialogue. This with a hat and a whip and a gun. Well, and and let's we were bang. We knew who he was. Let's talk about the Terminator movies, for example. Oh, great example. Technically, until in the first three Terminator, Terminator, Terminator Two, Judgment Day, and Terminator Two: Rise of the Machines, we actually have never met, with the exception of one scene for about five seconds. We have never met John Connor as the hero, as the right. leader who leads the resistance. Yeah. We see one shot of him in Terminator 2. Yeah. The the filmmakers give us the confidence enough for us to understand how important John Connor is. So mm-hmm. you have in number one, you just have uh Kyle Reese talking about him. Yeah. In two, you see him for about five seconds and you see him as a 10-year-old, right? Mm-hmm. And then in three, you see like what happens after the second one. It's actually pretty cool if they've stayed in that direction, but they don't. Where no. it's like he's off the grid and he's a drunk and he's like, yeah. well, what the fuck am I supposed to do with my life now? Because I stopped what was going to make me a hero. That's cool ideas, right? I like that, then, yeah. you get, then you get to fucking Salvation <sighs> where it's like, let's find out what makes John Connor as the leader tick. And it's like, you don't need that for a story. Like we The got mystique that. did enough. Yeah. The mystique, exactly. And there's no more allowance for mystique anymore. There's no, no more allowance for, like, I guess if we're sticking with Indiana Jones, like, you would mm-hmm. think, I, I don't I don't know how to explain this, but, like, okay, let's look at Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade in something like Solo, okay? Mm. The Star Wars movie Solo. Okay? Good comparisons here, yeah. Like, we roll our eyes at Solo, right? Because it seems like it has to explain every facet of the character of, of yeah. Han Solo. I got my name. Got I got my how I got the name, how I got the dice, how I met Chewie, all this stuff, right? Yeah. Now, now, if you put it on paper in today's day, and you told me that, okay, we're going to open Indiana Jones with a scene of him as a 13-year-old. We're going to show you how he got his scar, uh, how he learned how to use a whip, how he got scared of snakes, yeah. How he became obsessed with finding things. It's like, that- I, I would shake my head and be like, that's stupid, right? Mm-hmm. But there's something about the fact that they distilled that in about 10 minutes mm-hmm. and stuff you already know about the character. You're adding yeah. more. Like, there yeah. wasn't a. I mean, it's not two hours. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it flows really well and you kind of get it and it actually strengthens the character. There's mystique because you're like, ooh, I wonder. What other adventures he got up to as a kid? Oh, crap. Mm-hmm. There's 38 episodes of Young Indiana Jones I have to watch. But no, like, there's mm-hmm. a mystique there. There's a trust there. Whereas in Solo, it was like, yeah, we'll do a prequel about Han Solo. But instead of just telling, like, an organic story and maybe have a cute little thing, yeah, we're going to... Th- that's why I didn't necessarily hate episode one when it came out. Because yeah. unlike the next two... And then all of Star Wars afterwards, where it feels mm-hmm. like everything has to be connected. Like episode oh, yeah. one, it kind of functions in its own. It does world because yeah. it's like there's very loose connections. You know, there's a Palpatine, mm-hmm. but he's still just a senator. Mm-hmm. There's no empire. There's no like. There's no like cute like we're building the Tie Fighter now. You're like yeah. there's no. It yeah. kind of feels like it exists in its own realm. 
and it, it allows the audience to now he blows the execution obviously he but, does yeah but like it allows you to sit there and be like okay this is a different time in star wars this is a yeah. different let me get adjusted to this you know instead of by the next one episode two they're like connecting how what the jedis do and how everything connects and it's just mm-hmm. it's a mess but yeah, while so, while we're on Star Wars and Indy, I yeah, think this is sure. a small sidebar compared to the big t- big chunks we're doing. But um, mm-hmm. I think one of the things that's not that's helping movies or hurting movies and helping them feel long is mm-hmm. I don't think they do score music as good as they used to. Where there there's a I mean I, I know hate I, I everyone points to Williams, but you can point to you can point to um his people before him you can point to goldsmith you can point to alan silvestri you can point to his contemporaries but like the guys who are doing score now they just they're they're not they're not they the 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 in-between music of just like the dirge of music that just has to be in the background of a scene to kind of be there is it's never very thematic it's never very evocative Mm -hmm. it's just a tone to help the tone um, I think the worst perpetrator of this is, unfortunately, it's one of the best guys in the business, and it's Hans Zimmer. Hans, sure, sure. Hans's instrumentation and his work to make things sound unique is very good, but as a score, I look at Dune. He just won an Oscar for Dune. Now, obviously, him combining like all the little origins and all the little things to make a Dune soundscape is great. You can't hum that damn thing, and therefore, there's not really a cadence to go with the rest of the movie. Like we keep going to Indiana Jones, but my goodness, when the indie theme ch- dings go time, like it's just well, an accelerant and you don't it, have an accelerant when your score is like it. Look at Gorenson and in interstellar, like his black Panther score is worlds away from what he just got done doing in Oppenheimer. Cause there's yeah. a beat in a pace that says, Hey, my music's coming up right now. Cause it's go time, but my music's just hanging in the background right now to be sad dirge. And that well, doesn't help you make a movie yes. move. That's the yeah. problem too. Is um, you mentioned themes? Yeah, like like not that movies were trying to sell soundtracks in terms of scores because there is this weird thing. And even Jerry Goldsmith spoke against it. He's like, I don't know why they're releasing all my scores on CD because like they're a lot of scores are incidental music, like. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and sometimes it fits. Like, for instance, like mm-hmm. I liked Danny Elfman's score for Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness because mm-hmm. it fit the tone of the movie. Is it something I'm going to, like you said, hum or remember? Yeah. No. But sometimes you need the incidental score, and that's fine. Um, but in terms of like we're talking big stuff, like yes. big franchises, stuff like that, you know, what we forget is that, like, you know when John Williams did the Indiana Jones and Superman, like mm-hmm. there were three or four different themes that carried you through the picture and yeah. they were just as reliable as the action oh. and the, and everything. Whereas now, whereas now it, it feels, I don't know how to describe it because I'm, I'm all fine with, like I said, incidental music yeah. that but exists for the moment. It's thinner. But I don't no know what theme. it is. Yeah. It's thinner yeah. and there's no themes anymore. There, there, I feel like there's no, other than the, like the Avengers theme, yeah. You know, like I, I'm not going to revisit Sylvester's, uh Like, for example, I can listen yeah. front to back of Sylvester's Back to the Future soundtrack because yes, there's, there's so many different themes and things that evoke the movie to me. Yes, whereas like with Avengers, it's just the one theme. It is. You know? He's all, and, all and he's the one. Yeah, and you're lucky in a Marvel movie or a big franchise movie to get one theme. 
Yeah, right? I think you're right with musical depth. When you can have more than one good motif and, and something that could that could still that could still flavor your incidental music because like and Williams is the master of this, like E.T. Oh, yep. my gosh. Like his incidental just, you know, the kid getting drunk in the beer music still pops in a little little alien theme, a little this later theme, you know, and it just musical depth is missing. And therefore, the musical depth helps with, I hate to say it, manipulating flow, but it does. Well, yeah. and, and people <laughs> that's that's the thing. This is what is so confusing to me is because they need to over explain plot and characterization. Yeah, but like they also feel that if you manipulate someone on the score front, it's doing a disservice to the audience. That's what I'm I, saying. They're like yeah, picking choosing I have, because yeah, I'm I have totally those... down with being manipulated because I, I I talk about this in my English classes. Like I'll I'll show someone um, I'll play the jazz music mm-hmm. by itself, and yeah. they'll see the progression of done it. Donna, Donna. Mm-hmm. And then they, they understand the thematic and storytelling. Then I'll do something like I'll show a scene from Halloween yeah. without sound. Now, when people, yeah. when Halloween was test screened, it had no score. It was completely mm-hmm. silent. There was no music. That can be and ballsy. people thought it was cheesy and stupid. So yeah. the carpenter was like, ah, shit, I need to add music to this. So he went, like he made the score. And suddenly that movie became a feeling. An yes, emotion it, it gave that it gave that movie atmosphere yeah and that that is something that's kind of miss i i do feel like it is more like picking its place like i think the uh ludwig gorenson like yeah his first black panther score is amazing amazing it's got great themes yeah it, it has multiple themes yeah it has a mixture of things you can listen to that on cd totally. spotify and engage with I think there are moments. I, I think it's now about moments because like there is an incredible score sequence in Black Panther Black Panther Wakanda Forever when the new Black Panther is revealed. He's got this incredible mm-hmm. I don't know, he did it in Oppenheimer too. He's got this weird thing that's it's, it's kind of like a digital Yeah. Like, I think they did it in uh, yeah. yeah, they did it in uh, All Quiet on the Western Front too. It's like very unsettling, but also very powerful. Like, yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. There's a there's a really great powerful moment. In Wakanda Forever, but in terms of the entire score, I can't yeah. remember a single thing about it. And I think it's getting to that point where music is no longer a focal point for the films anymore. Um, it's few and far between. Yeah. Like, like yeah, we we, can, we, yeah. we need to throw incidental in there so our sound design can have something to mesh and mix with. But like, it's not important for emotional and well just keeping the pulse of the movie and like the pulse of the I, movie. that's good yeah, yeah i've had i've had those millennial friends of mine who uh who are younger movie people who yell at me for liking christopher reeve were like yeah but that superman score is completely manipulative i'm like that's the fucking point that's the you point. know that's like great. i guess what doesn't manipulate me the same two-note piano hans does and the drums and man of steel what evokes the moment and makes the moment is the music when you kick it up a notch so yeah i think the we're getting to the last 10 minutes where I think the I think the the last thing that makes movies feel long is more of a, a landscape situation. Maybe this is a good place to end, but like yeah. the theatrical experience versus the home experience is 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 in play, I think. You know, because like On two fronts. We, I think you brought it up. Yeah. Two fronts, right? The binge level of TV and streaming, yep. right? And and then yeah. the quality of it. Like we have we have well, really, yeah. really good prestige television, which is as cinematic as a movie. Sure. And thick and rich and at the comfort of your own home. 
And then it's the theatrical experience where you've got these really long movies on top of 25 goddamn minutes of previews and a big price tag in which to bring your family to go. And then, and then, yeah. And then, but then also, especially with, especially these known movies. And I had this happen to me with Oppenheimer, you might get there and then you have this, incidental score heavy sound design drag of a movie that you can't even hear the goddamn dialogue sometimes mm, where the theatrical yeah. experience is just not great we hear about people who are using subtitles at home more often because they can read and hear movies for a change that you that and who wants to go to movie theater and not hear the damn movie or can't hear it great or i didn't catch it like the comfort of home it's a big competition, and then the, yeah, the bingeable prestige stuff. But yeah, well, 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 and I, I think economics plays into it. So, so totally. as many people as many people know, when we're recording this, I've got like two days left before I start going back to work for school. So I've been uh, off for, yep. I've been off for about two and a half months. Mm-hmm. So money is getting a little low. Waiting for that next paycheck to come in, <laughs> you know, because yeah. I had the summer pay. So I went and did the Barbenheimer experience with my daughter, mm-hmm. but I told her straight up, I'm just like, you know what, I can't. Just money-wise, I cannot do all the snacks and the popcorn and all this shit. Mm-hmm. It's just too expensive. So even then, you know, you buy the movies for two, two movies for two about, I would say, you know, I can get her in at the kid rate generally or a matinee for the first yeah. one. But let's say we're spending 25 per movie, you know, so that's 50 bucks for two movies, right? Uh-huh. And I said, okay, we're going to limit the snack stuff, but... You know, the, the local theaters we have here called Harkins that, you know, if you have your cup all year, it's a $2 refill. It used to be one. Now it's two. But, you yeah. know, two movies, two refills, that's $4. That's $8 for two movies. And then at one point I was just like, no snack on the first one. But then on the second one, I was like, well, we need something to eat. So we got the cheapest <laughs> yeah. thing on the menu. Three hour Robin Iver, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was cheapest thing on the menu, which was a hot baked cookie, you know, $3 each. That's 6 bucks. So even when I was trying not to spend money. Mm-hmm. I spent about $75 for two. And that's you and that's two. Imagine that's a family of four. Exactly. Yeah. I, I remember. And once, bells and whistles. Yeah. I remember once taking, oh my God. I remember an ex-girlfriend and her daughter and then my two kids yeah. and myself went to see a movie I didn't even want to see. Of course. It was right. Detective Pikachu. Oh, shit. You Sorry. Know, I, I, and I, yeah. she bought snacks and I bought the tickets. I mean, the tickets for... See one, two, three, Five three people. kids and two adults. I mean, I spent a hundred and ten dollars to see Detective God Pikachu damn. on the tickets. Yeah. I get you it. Know, like, Why people and, stay home? Yeah. So it, home is just, you know, and and we're, you and I we're cinephiles, so we we like to see stuff on the big screen. Mm-hmm. Though I'm not really a junkie for like format like i don't go nuts as long as i can see it and hear it and feel yeah. it i'm good because i didn't fight to see oppenheimer in a big format i'm like yeah, i just like need you to and see I, yeah. you and i talked about this in the car once when we were in chicago like 99 mm-hmm. of movies that we see we've all seen on probably vhs or on a tv in yeah. our room or something it all like, looks better than when we were kids all of it like, yeah. yeah but we don't need to get all crazy about like well it only it can only be seen in 70 millimeter on imax it's like no is if the movie works it works no matter I, the Thank one you. place i will draw the line is the phone don't watch fair enough, fair on enough. your phone yeah yeah you know that's you know i i won't do that because that just seems yeah. stupid but yeah i'm yeah. like if i watch it on my screen at home or i watch it on the biggest screen possible. If the movie works, it's going to work no matter what, because that's how all the classics work well, too. It, it, well, if not, if not, it's it's 
that's the whole point. It's like it should, and if it doesn't, you fucked up. You know, studio or oh, sure. like make make a make a usable product. You know, yeah. Well, and 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 it's also kind of a weird thing too because I am a strictly a pretty much a streaming only guy. Every now and then, I will yeah. rent something. I know that's what I'm saying. As I I will yeah. rent something every now and then if I need to watch something like I'm, I'm doing a series or something. But it, it is a weird. When it comes to the economics, it is weird because, like, I always feel weird buying a movie because, yes, maybe when I feel like rewatching it again three years down the line, it's I'm glad I have it in my closet or in my basement like you do behind me. Yeah. But at the same time, if I'm spending 25 bucks on a movie that I'm only going to use twice, you also kind of have the same thing with going to the movies, too. It's like yeah. I get one experience. And if one thing goes wrong, I spent $75. Like if the film breaks or the air conditioning doesn't uh, work uh, or I'm yeah. sitting next to a bunch of fucking idiots, like, like that's money, you know, it's high risk, it's this high over risk. here, low risk. Yeah. Now the physical media is low risk, but streaming 20, and 20 streaming, bucks, watch it when I want, how I want. And now that they've yeah. tuned up home theaters, we all can watch a pretty damn good picture at home. So yeah. Yeah. And, and also with streaming and yeah. TV more accessible. Like you said, like Netflix releases a whole series of stuff in one day. You can sit there and watch 12 hours. You spend maybe if you've already got food in the house, you're spending Mm -hmm. nothing on gas, nothing Mm -hmm. on food, nothing nothing on the service. You've paid $5.99 a month or $9.99, whatever. You've already paid for it. You're basically doing it for free. And you're getting the same, you're getting almost a better experience. That's just, you know, so I think you're you're right. The op, the, uh, the economics that you're describing even trumps me trying to say prestige TV. The economics win that one every time. Well, yeah. and then and this will go to the time because that's what this episode is about. And we're running out of time on the episode, but <laughs> we the are. reason why the movies are so long is because they do feel. I think they do feel like okay, people aren't going to the movies as much. Mm-hmm. We need to put as much out there as we can when we have their eyeballs. True, and that's yeah. why like bang for buck, right? I can yeah. I can see in a contradictory way how if I go see a movie that's an hour and 29 minutes long, but I'm paying $50 to do it or $75 to do it, I might mm-hmm. be getting ripped off. But, and I, I know I'm not, and I know that's contradictory to everything we've made the argument for, uh, but, I, counts, but, I, but I can see how someone is saying, okay, less people are going to the movies. So if they're going to pay, we got to make this thing two hours and 40 minutes because we got to make sure that they they yeah. Get the experience of mm-hmm. going to the movies, and I think people are forgetting that, like the experience of the movie is the movie itself, not necessarily how much of a movie there is or how little of a movie there is. If you put a product in front of me that's good, yep, I don't care how long or short it is. As if it entertained me and I, it was my money's worth, I think they're forgetting about the money's worth part. They're taught. They're I more agree. About filling time, yeah, quotas, quality. Quality and quantity. We it's all the old basics, you know. Yeah. Yep, for sure. Well, that's a good way to end. Um, yeah, good talk, man. This is fantastic. Yeah, I love this. Uh, all right, guys, uh, we have merch now. Uh, we have everything: shirts, stickers, cups, mugs. Probably the same thing. Bumper stickers, maybe anything you can think of. Probably. Mm-hmm. probably. Butt plugs, everything. Um, maybe not can, those. <laughs> <laughs> you can get them with uh, every movie has a lesson dot com. You know, you cinephile hissy fit, whatever. It's on our T Public, T Republic storefront on every movie has a lesson.com. So please go there and buy some merch. Okay. Uh, I can I can attest 
from experience it's a, the shirts are a good fit you order they're the size stuff. it's it's yeah. They're, yeah they're they're good material easy to wash and they fit nice it's not like a too tight fit it doesn't have that sweat resistant crap that hugs on your body it's it's a good fit um as for cinephile hissy fit i had my notes and i accidentally hit a button uh follow us on twitter at cinephile fit on facebook at cinephile hissy fit podcast and instagram at cinephile fits uh by me and don are on letterbox you can check out our film reviews ratings and lists i've been making a lot of lists lately mm. we are also on rotten tomatoes we are charter members of the independent film critics of america Thank you so much for your loyal listenership and our tussles and for connecting with us on social media. Cinephile Hissy Fit is a Ruminations Radio Network podcast sponsored by Film Obsessive and 25YL Media. If you enjoyed this show, the Ruminations Radio Network has more excellent programming with stellar hosts and spirits topics. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our show and others on iTunes, Spotify, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 